Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks. Book Riot listeners can download a free audiobook on us and get an extended free trial of the service by going to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 35, recording on Friday, January 10th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, and I'm one of the editors of BookRiot.com. Jeff is on vacation this week, so I am here with my special guest, Matt Debenham, who is an author and the host of the What Are You Reading podcast. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, Your show is uh, about creative types, as you call them, talking about what books infected them as kids and got them going. Is that right? That's that's pretty much it. Yeah. And and also their sort of lifelong journey as readers, um, how their tastes have changed, how things that they maybe even didn't pay attention to much as kids uh, sort of came back and informed uh, their lives. And you've recently had Rob Delaney. Uh, you've had a cool, my favorite episode so far, I think, was with a guy from Marvel Comics. Oh, Jordan White. Yeah, yeah. he's great. He's an editor at Marvel. And uh, it's really funny because usually, you know, if you listen to enough uh, podcasts, certainly with uh, those with people uh, where they're talking about their jobs and, and their journey through their career, you know, it's always like this fascinating story as to how they got started. And, and I asked him how he got started as an editor at Marvel. And he said, oh, I just applied. <laughs> And that was kind of like he was, I think he was like right out of college and wow. he's like, oh, I'll, I'll just send an application to Marvel, see what happens. And then he got in and he's been there since. And that's it. That's such the story. A, that is such a lucky break. Doesn't happen that way much anymore. That's for sure. Yeah, it really doesn't. Uh, do you want to tell me a bit about either what you are currently reading or one of the books that got you infected so our listeners can uh, just get a taste of what they can find on what are you reading? Sure. Well, I'm, I'm forever talking about my struggles to uh, to stay with Moby Dick. Um, <laughs> that continues. Um, I, I read pretty widely. I teach as well. So I, I'm reading a lot of sort of um, of what I would call off book reading, meaning I'm reading a lot of student writing, um, you know, a couple hundred pages a week worth of that. And then whatever I've assigned to them, I'm reading that as well. Um, but things that I have going variously right now um, are things like I'm rereading Marathon Man by William Goldman. Uh, which is an, an excellent thriller, uh, which people may remember from the 70s. Um, I'm reading Silver Sparrow by Tyari Jones. Oh, that's a great one. Man, is that good. Uh, I'm reading uh, another one, another weird thriller from the 70s, um, much weirder than, than Marathon Man. It's a book a student brought to me. He said, have you ever read this? Have you ever seen this? Because it's out of print, and I don't know why, because uh, it's fantastic. It's called Cutter and Bone, hmm. and it's by Newton Thornburg, and it is like the most 70s <laughs> Uh, shaggy dog, private eye thriller. You know, that was the era that, that gave birth to things like Fletch, mm-hmm. the Fletch series, uh, which I think was Gregory McDonald, and then things like the um, the Robert Altman movie, The Long Goodbye, which is a sort of reimagining of, I think, The Big Sleep. Um, and it's it's like, you know, to write a thriller in the 70s, if you wanted to really evoke the era, you had to have somebody who was super, super damaged, a lot of pot smoking, 
um, a lot of sort of uh, you know not a real happy ending. That was a, that was a crucial component. Um, so this one, yeah, the the main the two main characters, Cutter and Bone, uh, are a uh, one of them is um, a former advertising executive who's now a uh, a gigolo. Uh, living in There's uh, a switch. living in Santa Barbara, big jump. Uh, and then his his buddy that he lives with is is a recently returned Vietnam vet who's missing some limbs and he has a facial injury. Um, it's pretty interesting. How did you get on this seventies thriller? I don't kick? know. <laughs> Actually, it's really funny because both of them came. The Marathon Man and the Cutter and Bone both came through the same student, and he was looking for things. And I've actually I've written about this on, on my blog mm-hmm. at mattdebenham.com, where I, I blog about writing. Um, and he had brought them in as things that he would like to uh, borrow from. He was like, I really like something about the way these are written. I'm writing a thriller myself. Um, a lot of the stuff that's written now sort of was leaving him cold, um, and he found something in these that really spoke to him and then when he showed me the sections that he was talking about i was like oh these are great and i just feel like there's there's something yeah that's kind of been missing in 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 a lot of just fiction like i i'd really love um stuff from from the 60s and 70s because there was this real sort of um there was a real black humor to it there was a real kind of resigned defeat mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um i used to work with a guy who who actually started a magazine in the 70s i don't think i had a recap got past one issue which is pretty great because the issue the magazine was called failure the other option <laughs> nice i always loved that story and then he went to work in the internet and did fine after that <laughs> yes the internet does like the stories yeah. about <laughs> about failure i think it's just i'm so fascinated by how we get onto the, the reading jags that we get onto and i think it's there's just this like mysterious alchemy thing that happens that no matter what publishers try to do to crack discoverability like you can't you just can't make up with computer programming the magic of you know, like a student recommending a book that you would never have heard of that then sends you down a reading jag or a friend putting something in your hands that you wouldn't have picked up for yourself that yeah, that just kicks off a thing that's exactly right and you know and I've, I've read plenty of stuff recently in recent years that that the industry would love me to read um things like gone girl and the interestings and uh, a visit from the goon squad and I, I think goon squad is is easily one of the best books of the last 20 years oh, I for really, sure, really believe for really wonderful and i think it's it's going to have a huge influence well it kind of has already because if you read the interestings mm-hmm. um I, I got the feeling that, that i think it was meg wallitzer wrote that yes. one i got the feeling that she had read goon squad and was like huh all right and uh <laughs> gave it a crack <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah those are all great books the interestings was one of my favorites of last year and um always happy to talk about meg wallitzer and and how much fun she is but it, i think it will be interesting to see that lasting effect of of goon squad particularly and how we balance you know the big bestsellers that the industry talks about with just our personal idiosyncratic reading preferences yeah because that's a book that shouldn't have worked by the way either that is not that is not the recipe for a bestseller right yeah there's a whole chapter in powerpoint like to sell that theory to someone yeah (laughs) yeah that that, that'll work it's it's so there's just so many mysterious pieces of it uh before we get into the week's news i want to shout out again to our sponsor audible uh they are the world's leading provider of audiobooks and if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash book riot you can get a 30-day free trial 
complete with a credit uh, to try one audiobook download for free. Um, it's a special offer. It's not available on the audible.com homepage. It is only available for you, Book Riot listeners. And if you're not familiar with Audible, they have 100,000 titles to choose from. They have every genre available. So you could maybe try to dig up some 70s thrillers like the ones uh, that Matt is talking about. You can dig into business books, which are a genre kryptonite of mine and Jeff's on audiobook. They've got <laughs> romance, comedy, sci-fi. Um, it, it plays on iPhones, on Kindles, on Androids, and more than 500 other devices, which just like sort of knocks me out every time that there are even 500 different kinds of devices we can listen to audiobooks on yeah. now. And uh, as we like to do, uh, whenever Audible sponsors the show, I will share an audiobook recommendation because uh, I listen to a ton of them. And Jeff and I have talked a lot, mostly about like the super nerdy business books that we listen to on uh, on audio. But lately, I've been listening to Perv, The Sexual Deviant in All of Us by Jesse Baring. Which okay. uh, I'm a little bit sad that Jeff isn't here with me this week because I do delight in talking about things that I know make Jeff blush when uh, when we do the show. But Jesse Baring is a psychologist and a sex researcher, and the book is about the history of how we classify different kinds of sexual behavior and what's considered perverted or not uh, throughout history. And he makes a case that. Uh, that when we try to decide what's appropriate or not, the real thing that we should consider, sort of the only thing we should consider, um, is harm. Harm caused to either the person doing the thing or to the person that they're doing it to. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the Dan Savage model for that for talking mm -hmm. about that kind of stuff, too. Is like, you know, basically, yeah, if, if it's non-consensual, if it involves children or animals, bad. Right. Right. It's uh and it, it's a real stretch. Like I'm uh I I read a lot about these kinds of things and uh he's still really, you know, stretching and challenging me to examine how I, I I judge even if I don't like to think of myself as a person who, you know, makes judgments about other people's preferences. We all have those inborn biases that we have to be aware of and work against and uh, Jesse Baring does a really nice job of not just challenging those, but of explaining why it's important to challenge them. And the book is just full of incredible anecdotes. And uh, some of them are really appalling and some of them are really amazing. And some are really <laughs> hysterical um, about the things that scientists and doctors believed about uh, sexuality over the last couple hundred years. Um, I've been you know, listening to it in the car and driving along and just, you know, there are moments where I'm like, oh my God, that makes me so squeamish. But why does it make me squeamish? I should think about that it's uh, it's really fascinating and so if you are into you know, sort of history of medical ethics um or history of sexuality or sex research any of those things if you've been watching masters of sex on showtime for sure mm -hmm. this is a book that you would be interested in uh and so you could check that out if you went to audiblepodcast.com slash book riot or any other audiobook that sounds good to you and thanks again to audible for for sponsoring now, I must ask, does Jesse read the book or, or is he it does. One of professional? Oh, that's good. He does. Yeah. I So my path to actually picking this as a book, like the book was on my radar for a while, but I figured I would just read it at some point was um, I'm really hooked on the You Are Not So Smart podcast with David McCraney. Mm -hmm. which is about uh, which is about biases and like the dumb things that our brains do that we don't realize our brains are doing that affect our choices and behavior. And he interviewed Jesse Baring and I was like, this guy is so funny. Uh, and 
uh, so Jesse reads the audiobook, and that was the thing that really tipped me over into listening to the book uh, instead of reading it. His inflections and just the humor that he injects into it, and he tells his own his stories about his own life and embarrassing things that happened uh, when he was a kid, things that he used to believe about sex. Um, it feels really personal and fun, and like he's trying to practice what he preaches. That's pretty great. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Speaking of science. <laughs> Good segue. (laughs) Really, genuinely a very good segue. I'm glad you did that. Uh, Sometimes these things just work in our favor. The big story this week that seems to be making its way around the bookish internet is that some scientists think that they have quantified the elements that can predict whether a book will be a bestseller or not, whether it'll be popular or not. Yeah, they did do that. (laughs) (laughs) Want to tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. Okay. So this was this was at the uh, this is at Stony Brook College, which is on Long Island, Long as, Island. Uh, as people may, not, may may or may not know. Um, and it's the Department of Computer, uh, sorry, the the College of Engineering and Applied Sciences. And it's a uh, Dr. Yejin Choi and her colleagues who have um, who have measured um, books. Now, here's the methodology is pretty interesting, and you can you can go to phys.org, uh, That's uh, p h y s dot o r g. And uh, just do a search on the story, and you'll you'll find the the full story because they they lay out the methodology. It's actually kind of a press release. Yeah, we'll actually we'll drop sorts. the link to the story in the show notes. Okay, cool. So you can just edit my dumb comments out then. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so the what they did was they used a bunch of uh, books from um, uh, Project Gutenberg, and they and they added some. Uh, some things like the lost symbol by Dan Brown. Because if you don't have Dan Brown in a study on on bestsellers, you're probably not doing it right. That's um, for sure the truth. For, for better, or for worse. <laughs> um, and uh, and then they they also uh, they considered award recipients like uh, Pulitzer and Nobel Prize winners. Uh, they looked at Amazon sales records. So they, they did. They looked pretty carefully, I think, at at what they were what they were looking at and they, they took a thousand sentences from the beginning of each book and then they they used this sort of algorithm and matched them up and, and tried to figure out what was in common uh what the commonalities were uh in those and then and then in in books that were less successful i'm not sure what the methodology was for finding the less successful books yeah and they measured success as the number of downloads from project gutenberg yeah which is kind of a kooky metric right there mm-hmm. um so a, a lot of this a lot of this is interesting you know the the funny so the the big sort of the money quote for me uh if there if there is one in here um is that uh is this one the research indicated that the that i'm quoting now the more successful books make more frequent use of discourse connectives those are conjunctions such as and but or mm-hmm. to join sentences and prepositions i think they mean clauses or phrases um and then the next sentence is prepositions nouns pronouns determiners uh etc um and adjectives are also predictive of highly successful books so it seems to me so far that books that use words <laughs> do really well with readers <laughs> but- this is exactly what it sounds like if you had asked me to describe what i thought <laughs> computer engineers talking about literature would sound like yeah, but that will, you can qualify that. Less successful books that I'm quoting here again are characterized by a higher percentage of verbs, adverbs, and foreign words. Oh. They also rely more on topical words that could be almost cliche, like love. All right. <laughs> uh, typical locations and extreme. Uh, the example there is breathless and negative. The example there is bruised words. So this, um, would, this would definitely illustrate 50 shades of gray as an outlier as a bestseller one would think one would sure think um you know the the 
the big story here is kind of getting buried. I think it's it's not just that dis, that scientists have discovered the elements of of successful uh, writing. It's that they've discovered the lowest common denominator. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, people write down to the dumbest of them do indeed prefer when you use parts of speech versus not using parts of speech. Um, so that's that's big news. It's funny because this was passed around a lot, and and you know the the sort of the headline that the news context. Um, and not just in the in the upworthy realm of things in the mm-hmm. internet, but the general context was scientists have figured out the um, the secrets to book success, or scientists have figured out. I've seen this. Uh, scientists figure out the recipe for a bestseller. Yeah, it's a it's really easy to spin this study into a clickable headline. It's I think it's much less easy to spin it into like how is this actually useful. You know, yeah. retrofitting um, retrofitting data to figure out what made things successful in the past, particularly with like Project Gutenberg, with the exception of the more contemporary titles that you mentioned that they had added to the study. Project Gutenberg is mostly books that are in the public domain, which means it's been quite a while since they were under copyright, which means they've been out for a while. We're talking about a lot of classics that are now free. And yeah. and so I wonder if there's a distinction between the kinds of language that work in those books and the kinds of language that work in contemporary books to make them. But also, this is vague enough, like the using conjunctions and not using verbs and adver- adverbs is vague enough. And also, you can't really write a book without anybody having any verbs to do in the book. Um, they, I don't think you could take this as a, it's not really a formula. You couldn't like sit down with this data and write a book and feel 84% confident um, that it was going to become a bestseller. Yeah, well, I think you, you just, you hit on it completely by, by pointing out the Project Gutenberg aspect of it, which, yeah, there's, those are older books. Those are, those are your freebies um, because no one's around to claim the copyright. Um, and so, and it's, it's funny because I did think it was, it was weird that, that some of the most successful words that they picked out were things like um, petticoats and porridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of other Dickensian uh, but anyway, for my joke. <laughs> Petticoats and it. porridge is the name <laughs> of my secret tumbler. Hugely, hugely. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I really think what's going on here. So Dr. Choi uh, says, Dr. Choi is quick to point out that these findings only demonstrate correlation, not causation. Okay. Um, adding, now here's the quote, we conjecture that the conceptual complexity of highly successful literary work might require syntactic complexity that goes against readability. <laughs> um, so I think what's going on here is, is that this is actually a story about scientists trying to understand how literature works. Yes. More than what makes a success or how, how might one write a successful book. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. Which is totally interesting and actually useful in and of itself. And I wish that were the story. <laughs> Um, but it, weirdly enough, it's not. And I think I think for her, it probably is the story. And then other people are going, oh, this this is the secret to writing a, a bestseller. Awesome. Right. Yeah. I would love for somebody to take these things and then use just like using just data from the study, write your book and then see how it does. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like versus the room full of monkeys with a typewriter. Right. There's a, we did a story. Jeff and I talked about a story way back several months ago about a man who had come up with a computer program that could write books by itself. And they were yes. writing, you know, tech it's, it's writing like technical manuals, um, but it's writing them without human intervention. And the program had written like a hundred thousand books by itself at the point that the story had come out. And okay. So for one, they were technical manuals, which are not likely to become, 
bestsellers. But the most interesting thing was just that a person had been able to program a computer to write books by itself, you know, to put together sentences that were coherent without human intervention, not so much what happens to them. Like that technology piece is really fascinating, but I just don't know that it actually has practical application. Yeah, that's like some Skynet Terminator level stuff. (laughs) Right. And yet, that's not the story. It's 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 interesting. Um, I mean, I do. There is validity to this study, mm-hmm. by the way. Um, you know, I mean, I, I do. I don't know that it's that it's provable, um, but I think just anecdotally, it's pretty it's pretty interesting stuff. I mean, I, I like I said, I teach and I've taught for a while, and I do tell my students that um, you know, there's something about the combination of a noun and a verb um, when you want to make an image um, mm-hmm. that does something to a reader's mind that creates an image in the reader's mind um, that can that can either match or uh, improve sometimes on the image in your mind versus using an, 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 an adjective. So if I just say like the black car, you, it's kind of a nothing description. It's, an, it's, a no, it's not an image. It's just kind of, you go, okay, I've seen a million black cars. You don't, it doesn't recall anything for you. You know, if you say something like the car shown like a whale mm. or gleamed, gleamed like a whale, the verb is gleamed. Whale is the interesting noun. Um, they both relate back to car. And so suddenly, like, you get an image of something. You get an image of a big black car shining. It has, like, a, it has depth. It has some personality to it. Um, you know, so there are things about the way that we use words that absolutely add up to a good reader experience. But that's, again, that's more anecdotal than, than scientific, I think. Yeah, I'm really fascinated by this trend recently in using science to explore and talk about literature. And I think eventually somebody will hit on a way not to, you know, pre-formulate a bestseller, but to more uh, to look at sort of those intangibles. I think what makes like what what you're talking about is not just the kinds of words strung together, but there's something about like the intangibles of a book, those themes, a particular rhythm to the language. I don't know how you would quantify what those like what the rhythm to a one writer's language versus the rhythm of an, another writer's language look like. But like for me, there's something about Karen Russell that is like the combination of sort of the kooky things that she writes about um, plus the way that she does it, not just the words that she chooses to use, but the way that her language feels um, mm. when I read it. But that's like, that's me. And I think a lot of people love her language. I just don't know how you get to, to science about it. Um, one of the best things that I've ever read about what makes books successful or rather how unpredictable uh, the success of a book is, is an essay by Tom Bissell called Unflowered Aloes, um, which I was just thinking of. So I want to mention it for our listeners if they're interested. It's the very first piece in his collection, Magic Hours, which came mm. out, I believe, last year. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's it's largely about this idea that we have in publishing and in literature that um, – if you write a good book, it will get out there into the world and it will be successful. That all you have to do is write a good book and then that's all <laughs> right. And then that's the book's destiny and it will fulfill its destiny on its own. And Bissell pulls that uh, apart and then sort of stomps it to the ground and then jumps on top of it and keeps on stomping it uh, in Unflowered Aloes. And he talks about some of the most famous works in literature and the strokes of luck and random sort of like random uh just random occurrences that pushed the right, basically like pushed the right editor up against the right book at the right time, or that got that writer into the public eye at the right time to get the book going, um, including Herman Melville, since you were talking about mm. Moby Dick. Um, Herman Melville was almost just completely an unknown forever. That's right. Yeah. So Unflowered Aloes by Tom Bissell. I think you might be able to read it for free um, in its entirety online somewhere. But if you want to read a whole book of interesting essays about 
creation and the people who uh, make creative work. That's Magic Hours by Tom Bissell, and we'll put that in the show notes too. And since we have been talking about science and books, maybe now we will talk about digital publishing. If you want. If you want, yeah. I mean, it's kind of this thing that people are interested in now. <laughs> See, it seems like it's catching on. We're at the forefront, I think, probably. Early adopters. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, there's there was an interesting piece on uh, Giga OM earlier this week um, called Digital Publishing, How Will It Evolve in 2014 and Beyond? And uh, this piece starts out by stating that digital publishing is now a mature, thriving industry, and yet many still ins- insist that publishing is in its death throes. Uh, so already I'm nodding my head because the refrain of Book Riot and of this show has been that publishing is changing, but is certainly not dying. Yeah, and, and I mean, I, I, just, I, I, I don't understand how you, how could you even go in public, whether it be to a Starbucks or uh, or on a subway or a bus or a, a doctor's office waiting room, and not take away that very thing. I mean, there's everyone's reading something, uh, and and just I, I've had more discussions about books just with, just with you know not even like the the you know established creative mm-hmm. types on my show, but just with regular people. I've had way more discussions about books in the last couple of years than in the 10 years previous, probably. Yeah. And just anecdotally, uh, before we get into some of the numbers of this piece, my like my Facebook stream over the holidays was filled with people who got like new iPads and new Kindle fires and were like, yeah. well, I guess maybe I should read some things on it now. And uh, these are people that, you know, I've known for years that know what I do for a living that, I, that I've never recalled seeing talk about books or ask for book recommendations recommendations, but now they have this technology that's sort of pushing them to think about it, um, which is cool. Yeah. My mom is going to turn 70 this year and she's, she's just got her third Kindle. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so the numbers in, in this Giga OM piece to say that while hardcover sales declined between 2008 and 2012, down from 5.2 billion to 5 billion. So that's a slight decline over four years. Ebook sales grew, rising from $64 million to $3 billion. A bit of a jump. Yeah, right. Uh, and while digital publications are typically sold at a lower per unit cost, the profit margins are higher um, from 41% to 75%. So as publishers make the transition from print to digital, like prices for the content is going down, but the margins um, on those are higher. And there's a, you know, using, there are several little pieces of the success story that are uh, in this piece. And they're talking about first Neil Gaiman and using Twitter as the tip of the iceberg to, um, to begin telling stories and then reaching writers. Um, There's a bit about new long form content discovery venues, um, growth in ad spending. Uh, But the basic moral of the story by Joe Hirkin, who's uh, the CEO of issue issuu which is a digital publishing platform uh, so he's got you know a horse he's in this race this. yeah <laughs> here is that publishing is alive and well as we go into 2014 uh and i think that's pretty exciting i think there's yeah. you know he and says I think, I, go ahead oh, go ahead no please oh yeah he the last line of this piece is uh there's never been a more exciting time for the industry at least not since gutenberg's day and to that i give an enthusiastic thumbs up yeah, and obviously that the other big takeaway from that is that is that authors are just going to are just keeping they're just getting richer and richer. Mm-hmm. Authors obviously. are just are just millionaire after millionaire after millionaire. <laughs> and that might lead into the story that you shared with me earlier this week about ebooks and profitability. We are killing the segues here. <laughs> I thought it might lead pretty well to that. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, so the story here 
um, is that so Publishers Lunch uh, this last week um, had had a discussion about Harper Collins's uh, most recent investors meeting, uh, and included is a chart. So when you go to an investors an investor meeting, and I think we've all been to one. Oh yeah, uh, I mean all the time. They hand out a uh, they hand out a, a thing. They hand out a set of <laughs> a set of papers. I'm I'm just I'm purely going. I've seen an investors meeting on I think the office. Here is your investors meeting, and here is your paper thing to go with it. Well, yeah, and, and and the investors meetings I've seen in TV and movies, they're holding they're holding a stack of papers. So in the stack of papers. <laughs> At the, at the Harper Collins one, and Harper Collins is pretty representative. They're one of the big publishers. Um, there is a there's a little snapshot that's called "Improving Profitability Through Better Through, through Better Unit Economics." Now, it's a chart that act, and it's a very helpful chart. It's a terrible name, but it's a very very helpful chart, um, and I think helpful in ways that they did not anticipate. Mm. Um, because here are the numbers. Um, Harper's numbers say that uh, a hardcover priced at 27.99 and that's obviously list price sticker price it generates in the end $5.67 profit to the publisher and $4.20 royalty to the author now that's a pretty that's a much more even split than i would have guessed yeah that is interesting much more even now here's the here's the the noteworthy part a 14.99 ebook so that's that's an ebook that's been priced at $14.99 generates $7.87 profit to the publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, so far, so good. That's that's a higher profit mm-hmm. than hardcover, okay? I feel so, something coming. <laughs> one would assume, therefore, that the royalty is correspondingly higher. It is not. It is actually lower. Um, mm. it, it's a, So for a $7.87 profit to the publisher, it's a $2.62 royalty to the author. So in other words, every time a hardcover sale is replaced by an ebook sale, the publisher makes $2.20 more per copy, and the author makes $1.58 less. Wow. What is going on? I think maybe publishing has not yet figured out how to do this well, is what... That's charitable. That's a really charitable. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, obviously, publishing has not figured out how to do this. Well, first of all, fourteen ninety nine as an ebook price is really not awesome. Um, No, it's not. And I and I get again. That's so. That says that says agency price, and I assume that that's that's the publishing industry term for sticker price. Um, Because and I mean it's true. I mean there are you know you will see you'll go on you will see um, brand new big books. Um, listed for twelve ninety nine, thirteen ninety nine, mm-hmm. things like that on Amazon. That's that's right in line. For the most part, books are, are we all know they're like nine ninety nine, mm-hmm. um, or I think it's slightly higher on on um, on Apple, but on iTunes. But um, yeah, this is um, like I said, your your assessment was really was very very char- <laughs> was very charitable, very glass half full. Um, I w- I would the sort of cynic in me would would guess that that they figured it out just fine. Um, and that they're going to see how long they can go before a bunch of authors, um, let's say the Authors Guild, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, makes a real stink about this because that is a crazy thing to have happen where your profits go up and the author's profits actually go down uh, almost by half. Yeah, it would be so interesting to see what these numbers looked like maybe three years ago 
before, mm-hmm. you know, before eBooks really took off. Cause I think we're rolling towards a point where eventually in the next, I think in the next couple of years, eBook sales will uh, like the number of eBook sales will equal or exceed the, or the percentage of eBook sales will equal or exceed print sales, but we're not there yet. Right. Um, and as we approach that, it'll be interesting to see how publishers handle it because they're going to need more of their profit to come from eBooks, but they also need to continue paying the people who create the work uh, that they are selling. Yeah, it's funny. This and and the previous piece really make me think uh, more than anything. It makes me think of the music industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm certainly not the first person to draw that analogy. But I think that, you know, the there's a bunch of different things going on at once, which is that, um, you know, digital publishing like um, the digital content creation, you know, with GarageBand and whatnot, um, you know, it, it enables more people to get in uh, with a product that that actually seems pretty good, you know, you can you can make a decent looking ebook now. Whereas, you know, to to make a decent looking hardcover book or paperback book, it involved a lot of money. It involved working with um, a sort of specialty publisher. If you if you were, and I'm talking about self publishing, mm-hmm. um, the same as you know bands making producing their own albums and so forth. Um, but you know what it also adds up to is you know like in the in the music industry, it's more artists making less money. Sure. And I think one of the sort of one of the correlates from the music industry that is really applicable is that artists have had to come up with ways uh, besides selling their work to make money and, and to lean heavily on like touring and merchandise sales and doing special editions of things. And I think publishing and authors would be really smart to consider that, that um, it's too late to, to fight the fight about, um, you know, the content is worth the same amount, whether it's put in a hardcover book or an, or an ebook. You know, we've already been through the ringer of a couple of years of really tedious think pieces about how ebook sales are making people think that the value of a book is declining and value and price are are different measures of things. Um, but what a lot of artists in the music industry have done is you know come up with other ways to interact with their fans and to get money from them uh, to make their careers as artists sustainable. And I, I wonder and I hope really that we'll see that uh, publishers and authors will try that going forward that, um, you know, maybe ebook prices continue to look this way. Maybe ebook royalties continue to look this way, but an author who's willing to go out on, on a speaking tour and do really interesting special events that charge uh, people to attend them. You know, I would, I would pay to go uh, to a special lunch with an author whose book that I had just read. If I would get to, you know, to talk to them or hear them do an interesting speech, uh, you know, a speech or something that was beyond the typical, like stand up in front of a bookstore and read five pages and then sign things. Um, or you've got like the hardcore fans that will pay for a special slipcase edition or a video conference or whatever. Like, I think there are a ton of interesting things that writers could do. And I think they're going to have to start experimenting with them because I'd be super surprised if uh, if publishers drove these numbers back up and were willing to cut into their own profits as ebooks become more and more popular. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. It's just all that sort of conflicting information here. And you know, one of the one of the things from that from that um, from that uh, publishing in 2014 piece that I thought was really interesting, and it's not new by any means, but it's something that that you ha- we have to keep re- remembering. Um, so he, uh, he says. Uh, 
you know, one thing digital publishing offers that print publications can't match is a new way to form and participate in special interest communities mm-hmm. where readers can share and discover even more relevant content. So whether the topic is model trains, gluten-free living, et cetera, uh, it's now possible for readers to come across, uh, to come together digitally to discuss the issues they feel passionate about and they share content and so forth. And that's great. It's like, the, it's that global village, global newsstand mm-hmm. idea. Um, what it, but, but what it does though, is it, is it goes back to the thing I was saying with, with more, you know, like more bands making less money in the music industry. In other words, um, if, if you're a, a current, uh, let's say like non top 40 music fan in 2014, um, you know that like there are like a thousand bands competing for your attention um, in the style of music that you like where like maybe a few years ago they were like 500 or 200 or whatever. And so now you've got to pick and choose. And, you know, it's just everyone's getting a much, much every, more people are getting into the pie, but but obviously much, much smaller pieces of the pie to go around for, for each person. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's 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 going to be tricky. And I think I think that the, the model that you're suggesting where artists become more. Um, authors become more involved in not just the marketing of their books, but sort of, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's that sort of, you know, selling yourself as the brand kind uh-huh. of thing. Um, you know, I think that that's obviously, that's definitely where it's got ahead. Um, you know, and thank God that so many authors are, are wild extroverts. <laughs> So it's that's going to be no problem, you know. But it's true because I, I do. I mean, I know people personally. I have friends who are like, "Well, I don't. I just want to write books, and I just want to put them out there. I'm not. A, I'm not yeah, a marketer. Sure. I'm not. A, I'm not a performer." And I'm like, "Well, you got to learn something. You got to figure yeah, something out." Buddy. That is a lovely dream. Yeah, but, like even you know, in the last twenty or thirty years of publishing, the number of people that have made their full time livings just writing and selling their books is really low, and uh, that's a. It's a myth that I think it's important that we work to crack, not just in publishing, but in the reading public's perception of writers. Um, you know, I, yeah. several months back, Ann Kingman from Books on the Nightstand was on the show with me, and she was talking about Jeff Kinney, who does the Diary of a Wimpy Kid yeah. books, and how um, he sells millions and millions of books every year, but he continues to work a full-time day job. Not in his case because he couldn't afford to just write full-time, but because he enjoys you know, sort of the balance of challenges to his brain of doing that, and I'm sure um, the, the extra financial security, but I'm, I'm thinking in, of the, of all of the literary writers that I know and many of whom have appeared on bestseller lists. Most of them have day jobs. Even, you know, they don't talk about it very publicly or like tweet about their boring day job that they went to right up until it was time to leave on book tour. But I think very few people really make a full time living selling books. Um, yeah, that's true. And, and I, I like, I, I really appreciate that you're saying that, that public perception has to change. I remember when, um, when my book was coming out in 20, it had just come out in 2010 and it's like, it was on a college press, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like it's a, it's a, it's a short story collection, uh, which is like uh, kryptonite to publishers, uh, like in, in the bad sense of kryptonite, not that they have a weakness for it, but, uh, that it, it makes it's them difficult. weak. Yeah. <laughs> they can't. No good. Um, but, uh, um, so the book had just come out and, and I had a friend who used to see me writing, I would, I would write parts of it at Dunkin' Donuts and, one day she saw me at Starbucks and she goes, oh, I guess you're doing well. <laughs> no, I, it's pure coincidence. I happen to be, with, uh, I happen to be uh, working on my stuff at Starbucks for this hour that I'm going back to my job. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was, uh, but that's, that's true. And, and it's funny because it's, you know, when you, you see it all the time in, in comments sections on places like the AV Club when, mm-hmm. um, when a musician or an author or somebody talks about their day job, the comments are like, oh, my God, that's so sad. 
Yeah. You know, Which, there's pity. <laughs> I think, you know, it's, it's been the reality for a long time, but because, it really has, but yeah. it's probably been the reality for forever in the history of publishing. But now that the internet has leveled the conversation between readers and authors and readers have that kind of access to writers and writers are opening up about their lives in ways that they haven't before. Like now we're actually just starting to know that this is how things have always been. Yeah, I think uh, that understanding is going to get better, which is which is which is only a good thing. Sure, and the like, you know, those outlier stories are outlier stories that make the news for a reason. J.K. Rowling's income is news for a reason, and E.L. James' book sales are, is new. You know, those are news stories for a reason, and that's that they're uncommon. They're not. That's not how most authors' experiences. Yeah, and if you work. think that that uh, you know whoever you know this author X wrote their uh, their first time novel and sold it for ten thousand dollars, and now they're going to live off of that. Yeah, the average, you know? the, and, average and the, advance, the average person. Yeah, it's it's low, is, right? Yeah, the average advance is less than ten thousand dollars, and so this yeah. this notion that you're going to sell your book and quit your job and just do your art <laughs> yeah. is is great, but it's a dream. It's real cute. <laughs> it is real cute. I know it's that sort of like, oh, honey. <laughs> Yeah, and it's like not only not only do they just get that ten thousand dollars, but they they will not earn another penny until that book earns back the ten thousand dollars. That's what people need to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that they got ten thousand dollars and then they just need to wait for the profits to come rolling. And it's like no, then they need to go and sell. And that's why authors need to get more involved in the selling of their books because you got to sell a bunch of copies of your book in order just to just to get to zero with your publisher and then start getting on the on the plus side of the equation. Right. And so the beauty of the internet then being that now you can speak directly to those people that might that might buy the bunch of copies of your book that help you get there. That's um, right. That's that work that writers have to do whether they like it or not. Um well, here, this was an accidental segue, but I guess right before we get to... <laughs> you did mention it. I'm feeling really proud of how this show is going so far. Um, since we were talking about HarperCollins and the music industry, um, Jeff and I had named their new uh, chief digital officer, Chantal Restivo-Alessi, um, is the woman who's been behind the HarperCollins move in the last year to really experimenting with all of the new options for ebooks and digital content and subscription models yeah. and reaching readers. And she comes from the music industry. Uh, so that's, it'll be, inter- it has been interesting to watch. I think it'll be really fun to watch, um, particularly what HarperCollins tries in the next year, um, how Restivo Alessi will bring her knowledge and her experience from music over, but also to think about what else we might be able to learn. Um, Cause music seems about a decade ahead of publishing just in terms of how they've been affected by that uh, by the evolution of technology um, well and this this next one since we were I didn't even intend to talk about the diary of a wimpy kid but that happened uh, Jeff Kinney uh, who wrote that series uh, you let me know this week that he sold 1.8 million hardcover copies of the eighth book in the series um, and you know in print but did not crack the um, top 100 Kindle sales yeah, that I thought was really interesting because there are, there have been all these stories about how um, uh, children's use of the iPad and the Kindle has has grown exponentially over the last couple of years. Um, when I was researching a couple of different things for this for this week's show, I kept coming across those stats. That was a really really big story in 2013 was was the the rise in in ebook use by kids, and yet the most popular kids book. Uh, they're not reading it that way. Um, and I think, and it's funny, I, I was, I was trying to find, cause so my, my, my sort of, um, my idea about this, my, my supposition was that, um, 
you know, is this partly what's what's helping keep um, places like Barnes and Noble alive? Mm. Um, because you walk into a Barnes and Noble, you know, I think these books tend to come out once a year, the Jeff Kinney books. Uh, and so there's going to be a giant, like a, a six or seven foot standee um, of the the wimpy kid character. Um, and my kids have read, have both read the books, but I can't remember his name. For the I think his name is Greg. There we go. Let's say Greg. Well, we're going with Greg. <laughs> his I name Rod- is now Greg. I think Roderick is his brother. Or his buddy. I don't know. Greg. Let's just go with Greg. Um, I'm complicating this. So many like, angry emails if it turns so, out I'm wrong about that. So, um, uh, so you'll see that in the store and it's like, it's like, oh, that's what they do here. That's right. They, they sell kids books. Because if you walk into a Barnes & Noble, it's a lot of people in the cafe. It's a lot of people in the magazine section. Um, it's people here and there browsing through um, the nonfiction, especially like the gluten-free living books mm-hmm. um and then you're like oh this is kind of a ghost town and then you go into the kids section and it's hopping yep there's the train table yes the train table yeah uh which uh wipe those off <laughs> um, just, um but um but but you know and and if you walk in when that book is out when one of those wimpy kid books is out you'll see like 10 kids walking around the store with wimpy kids books in their hands so there's something about owning that about holding that book um, that still appeals to kids. Uh, and I think it's still, now I couldn't find any information because Barnes and Noble is pretty, pretty, um, tight lipped about, about what sells where in their, in mm-hmm. their stores. Um, but I, I would, I would expect that this, this is really doing a lot for, uh, obviously cause they're physical books. They're doing a lot for brick and mortar stores. And why I say that is because even though it was the number one book, um, in hardcover, it was not even top three in print books on Amazon this year. Huh? Yeah interesting so it's it's not selling enough online right now i'm talking about the physical book not the ebook the the physical mm-hmm. book is not selling enough online to make number one and yet it's number one by a huge margin in the physical world in the brick and mortar world i would think that would have it has to have something to do with it that there's that impulse um that impulse purchase that you're talking about kids wanting to get something while they're in Barnes and Noble with their parents and to have that object. Maybe it also has something to do with the format of the books that they look like comic books. And they're very visual. Yeah, yeah. There's something about interacting with that. Um, I haven't seen a wimpy kid ebook. Um, I'd actually be really interested in seeing what those look like uh, when they get translated to digital, but a lot of um, sort of comic style things have not made the transition very well with the exception of the stuff that's on like the comicsology app that looks really terrific. That's right. Like um, bone, I think bone does pretty well. Yeah. Uh, when I worked for Barnes and Noble, which was like four or five years ago now um, as a bookseller, they were wimpy kid was in its early days, but mm-hmm. as soon as there was a release date for the next one, there were, we would put signs up all over the store and make announcements like on the hour for the three months leading up to the release date that the next wimpy kid book was available for pre-order and you could, you know, come to the customer service desk and pre-order your copy. Um, it's still like that. You go into Barnes and Noble one. and there's a stack of them behind the desk. Yeah. And you're counting, always like reserve notes on you're them. counting on those kids that are, that are in the store hearing it that want the next one and they want it like the very first day. They want to pick it up that morning on the way to school and, you know, take it to school and read and show everybody that they, they got the new Wimpy Kid book, like on the very first day that it was available. Um, it's interesting how that's, how that's driving it. There's been a lot in the last, um, like six months or so about the kids' preferences for reading and how like kids are, even though they're reading more eBooks um, than they ever have before, they're still reading mostly 
in print. Um, and I think there are just tons of confounding factors for it. Like if you've, I don't know how old your kids are, Matt, but like if your kid has a Kindle, are you going to connect it to your Amazon account with a credit card and let your kid buy <laughs> whatever they want? Um, that's that's a good question. I have an my kid does have an iPad, uh, which totally eradicates that part of the equation because you can't buy directly through the iPad on mm-hmm. uh, on Amazon. Uh, and I don't know why, but we just we've never bought anything on on uh, iBooks. <laughs> I can't speak to the experience. Um, but both my kids read the Wimpy Kids books, so I, I have a fourteen year old and an eleven year old. Mm-hmm. And a couple things about those books: one, um, there is something about the hardcover. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to hold that book in paperback. I'm not quite sure why. Um, right, and they God, don't even make them in paperback, do they? No, no. It, it's and that's that's pretty pretty ballsy move, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they figured out that it really is a kind of a tactile experience for the kids. They're, they're, the paper is is fantastic stock. It's like that sort of rough, mm-hmm. beautifully scratchy paper. Um, not that cheap, pulpy stuff um, that, that you see a lot of the time. Um, the 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 hardcovers have a softness to them, if that makes any sense. They feel like, like little leather couches, kind of. Um, and, you know, like a close, a close um, relative of those is, the, um, is the, the How to Train Your Dragon books by Cressida Cowell. Oh, I haven't seen those. Those are fantastic. Um, and those also are, I believe, hardcover only. The ones I've, I've only ever seen them in hardcover. It's that same kind of like softish hardcover. It's nice quality paper. Um, and kids will just go, oh, there's a new one of these, yoink, and they'll just pull it off the shelf and bring it up to mom or dad. And they're priced cheaply enough. I think they're like $8 or so that you go, eh, all right, that's worth it. Yeah. Because, um, you know, when you're a parent, do you, do you have children? No, I don't. I have nine but nieces for- and nephews that I take into bookstores. <laughs> That's it. That's plenty. That is plenty. That's yeah, that's a need. lot. My hands are full. And, and then, you, but you do have a dog. I do have a dog. That you got the full experience. I read to her occasionally. There you go. But she can't talk back, and that's right. the best thing of all. Right. Uh, but if you if you have kids, uh, one thing that you learn really quickly as a parent, um, and I do talk about this. I end up talking about this on the my podcast a lot because I, I end up having a lot of parents on for whatever reason. Um, and one of the things that you learn really quickly is that everyone you know who doesn't have kids will just give you any old kids book. And you and from that, you learn that, oh, there are not that many great mm-hmm. kids books, especially in that in-between age. So there are some fantastic... There's, there's this amazing tradition of picture books, for instance. Right. You, can just, you can raise a kid on William Steig and, and, uh, and things like that. Um, but... There's this gap between that and the sort of um, early reading, like, you know, middle school type mm-hmm. stuff that's a little more substantial. And the gap is filled by Wimpy Kid mm. and by and its knockoffs mm. um, and by things like the Cressida Cowell books. Um, the parents really appreciate those because they're smart. They're not. Um, they're not smart in that way of like where it's just purely winking at the parents, like a lot of bad entertainment is. Um, but they're smart in that they're, they, they speak directly to the kid. They offer really relatable situations. At the same time, there's a little humor there. There's a little something extra for the parents. So it's got that sort of bullwinkle or Looney Tunes vibe <laughs> to it. Um, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a real pleasurable experience to have one of those books versus the tons of you know, the piles of crap that are out there. So interesting. Yeah, I'm now I'm thinking about how many 
probably bad gift books I've given to parents over the years. Well, it's a, it's it's <laughs> so hard to know because because packaging is like everything. Yeah, and the and kids so, get excited because it's like glittery and shiny. Yeah, and you're like, oh, this is terrible. Yeah, the, I really, um, I'm really interested in if our if our listeners have this experience or have any other theories, maybe things that we've missed about um, what this discrepancy is doing for uh, particularly with the Wimpy Kid books between print and digital, um, hit us up at podcast at bookriot.com and uh, let us know what you think or if you have any you know insights or some data that we missed. You know we love that juicy, juicy data. Um, <laughs> we're, we're running through stuff, so I want to get to our second show sponsor and then we'll talk about new books this week because um, this episode has also been sponsored by BookBub. Uh, they are back. They sponsored another recent show and that's Book BUB. Uh, BookBub helps you find free and discounted ebooks in the genres that you love. It's a daily email. Uh, so you put in your email address at bookbub.com slash book riot for, uh, for the book riot special. You put in your email address. You can tell them what kinds of genres you're interested in. It takes about 30 seconds to sign up. It's completely free. I mean, every day you'll get an email from them or you can set it to send you digests at a lower frequency um, that notifies you of free and deeply discounted ebooks in those genres that you've selection, selected. Usually it's um, a 75% discount or more. Um, I've seen up to like 90% discounts and some of the titles are free. Um, as with anything, you know, you're not going to love everything that they offer you. Um, but you can tell them, you know, I read on a Kindle and I'm into romance and science fiction and they'll just notify you of those things. Or if you read in a bunch of different apps, you can tell them that and they'll notify you of all the sales and sort of, you know, provide you with a broad um, choice every day of ebooks that, that you can check out. They have over 20 categories to choose from and um, they have a team of editorial uh, you know, folks whose job it is to read through all of the books on sale that are submitted to be featured and then to actually select the ones that they will feature to BookBub's subscribers. So you're not just getting, you know, a fire hose of ebook discounts. There's There are people looking at them and determining based on quality and interest what to put in front of you. And only about 20% of the books that are submitted to them are actually featured. They've got over... Oh, oh. Yeah. Good, you know, pickiness sometimes. That's, in, that's impressive. I'm sorry to interject, but but I say wow to that. Yeah, I've uh, I've done some freelancing in my pre book riot days for other ebook related things, and the like, just the number of submissions from um, authors who are trying to promote their ebooks or from publishers who want to promote their ebooks is really overwhelming. I can't imagine what the inbox looks like at BookBub. Um, so it, it is really impressive that they go through those, and that twenty percent that you're looking at is sort of the best of all the submissions that they get. Um, they've got over 2 million members since they launched and they have facilitated more than 25 million ebook downloads. So there's folks using it and um, there's folks buying great uh, discounted and free ebooks. And again, you can give it a shot totally for free. Bookbub.com slash book riot. If you do, let us know. Um, a couple uh, readers posted on our Facebook page after the last show that they had tried it and we're finding out about some cool books. So uh, thanks to Bookbub for sponsoring. There you go. And now we're going to talk about new books out this week. You want to go first? You better go first because I don't have anything that's new this week. Oh, okay. 
I added things that were new to me. (laughs) (laughs) That's also totally fine. (laughs) I'm actually going to skip. I haven't read the hardcover that I was going to mention is The Invention of Wings by Sue Monk Kidd, who wrote The Secret Life of Bees, which, of course, was uh, very famous, was an Oprah pick, was turned into a movie. And The Invention of Wings is her latest novel. It's out in hardcover this week. By all accounts, it's terrific. Um, I have to confess that I don't even know what it's about, but uh, it is one of those big releases of early 2014 and definitely worth mentioning. My two that I really wanted to talk about are new paperback releases that came out this week. So by the time you're listening to the show, um, they will be available to you in paperback. The first is The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, um, which is right up that like self-improvement nerdy business book alley of mine. Um, he unpacks the ways that our habits work and the ways that we can actually identify why we're doing a thing that we want to stop doing and then how to stop doing that thing. Um, Sort of what the three steps of cracking a habit and then replacing it with a new habit are. Um, At the time that I read it last year, I was in this really nasty cycle of like every day around 3 p.m. getting kind of sleepy and going to my local coffee shop nearby and getting a coffee. But then I can't drink coffee after noon or I lay awake all night hating myself (laughs) because I'm not sleeping. Uh, And so it just like it was not working, but I was doing this thing at three o'clock every day because it woke me up temporarily. Um, And there's a little chapter in the book that is about Duhigg himself doing something similar, but with cookies every afternoon and sort of figuring out that it wasn't just that he wanted a cookie at that time of day, um, but that he wanted like a break from his work day and a little social interaction. And so he started replacing getting up and getting a cookie with like getting up and walking to a coworker's desk and talking to them. And um, that really resonated for me. And I was like, that's what I'm doing. You know, three o'clock, I've been working all day in my office at home by myself with my dog and I'm getting tired, but like I should not be drinking caffeine because it'll keep me awake all night. I'm going and I'm talking to the baristas at my local coffee shop where I go all the time who know me. And it really did turn out to be like that. I just needed a break from what I was doing and I wanted a little social interaction. So I started trying to replace the coffee runs with like taking the dog for a walk or calling a friend for a few minutes or like sending a text message or something like that. Um, So he's, it sort of gets at identifying what the need is that we're trying to meet with our bad habits and then how we can meet that need with a better habit. Um, really interesting stuff, full of anecdotes and science. Uh, and I thought it was really useful. I read it in print, um, but it's available as an ebook or, or as an ebook and as an audiobook. And I think if you're looking for something to try on audio, that would be a good one. And the other one is Drinking with Men by Rosie Schapp, uh, which also fresh out in paperback this week. It was one of my favorite memoirs of 2013. And uh, it's about sort of what it is to be a regular at a bar, um, particularly as a woman in a largely male social situation. And she starts off um, writing about when she was a kid, I think in the 70s, um, being in the bar car of a commuter train outside New York City and like telling fortunes to the guys who were commuting home from work in Manhattan and were getting pretty drunk while they were doing it um, right up to the different bars where she has been a regular um, in New York and her life abroad and places where she's been a bartender. Um, it's a it's just a really wonderful, charming, warm memoir about sort of the communities and the families that we create for ourselves. Um, bar culture, which is, I think, largely stereotyped and not really very well understood. Um, mm. 
and uh, Rosie is really it's just really wonderful there it's a really charming lovely book um, and it made me wish that like there were a place around the corner where I just you know went and got a drink a couple of times a week where they knew, knew what to make for me before I walked in uh, really yeah. wonderful where right, everybody now, knows your name right exactly that it, it has some appeal right <laughs> <laughs> Your turn, Matt. It totally does. Um, the two books that I wanted to mention are, are they're not out this week, but they, they actually were new at the very end of 2013, and I fear that they were overlooked. Oh, yeah, um, that happens. It does. It does. Well, publishing is a funny thing, isn't it? Um, it really is. Um, but um, the first one is, is and I, I apologize if, if these have been mentioned on, on Book Riot before. They have but, not. Uh, Go for oh. it. Right. I, I've edited these. Okay, cool. Um, so the first one is the Wes Anderson Collection, which is a gorgeous uh, coffee table book by Matt Zoller Seitz. He is a, uh, a film critic, a, a longtime film critic. And um, I, I have to say, it's, it's one of the best coffee table books I've ever held because it's not purely a coffee table. But there's, you don't just flip through mm-hmm. it. There are plenty of visuals. It's a very visual book. Because uh, it is about film, it is about the films of Wes Anderson, who made Rushmore, um, the Royal uh, Tenenbaums, yeah, Fantastic Mr. Fox, uh, Moon, Moonrise Kingdom, things like that. Um, and it was interesting because I had had this period of, of just sort of shunning the work of Wes Anderson. So I was like, oh, it's, I fell into that trap of going, oh, it's twee. Mm. Um, and and I had it's funny because I had recently come back around to it, and then this book came out, and the book is packed with these interviews, these really really long interviews about each film. And it's really about, you know, if, if you do anything creative, it's, it's a really, really fascinating look at, at how one person does it, especially a very, um, he's a very odd person, Wes Anderson. <laughs> it's, he's, um, he, he's, he's definitely, it's not an act. <laughs> it's not an affectation. Um, but it's great. It's very insightful. And, uh, and Matt Zoller sites sort of lay, he'll lay out like shots that you recognize from your favorite Wes Anderson movies, and he'll show you the inspiration for those shots from different movies, uh, from you know Orson Welles movies, like really unknown Orson Welles movies, oh, so or cool. uh, Truffaut movies. It's really neat. It's a great, great book. Uh, so I recommend it. The other, uh, the other one I want to recommend is by a friend of mine, uh, and it's on. Uh, it's a Hyperion uh, hardback right now. It's called Confessions of the Latter Day Virgin. Uh, it's by Nicole Hardy. And it's about her experiences, and I'm not, I'm not tipping anything here, I'm not giving anything away, it's about her experiences of uh, being a Mormon woman, entering her 30s um, as a virgin still, and wrestling with the idea of, okay, I'm supposed to wait until marriage, I don't think I'm going to get married, um, and my religion and my culture say that I'm not supposed to be having sex, and yet I'm having relationships, and this is something I want to do. Um, it's, it's a, it's a really, really terrific book. Um, it's so funny. She's funny. I went to graduate school with Nicole. Uh, she's a fantastic poet as well. Um, but it, it's just a really funny, smart book, um, that it, the title, I have mixed feelings about the title because it sounds sensationalistic and mm-hmm. yet it completely is confessions, you know, <laughs> it is a very confessional book in the truest sense of the word. Um, but she's so thoughtful about it. It's not lascivious at all. Um, it's very sweet, very surprising. It's, it's just a terrific book. I am downloading it as we speak like that. Uh, I don't know if you did that on purpose, but the intersection so... of uh, like <laughs> sex and religion is a thing that I can't resist in books. And I, I've talked about it on the show before, but that like, as you were describing that, all of my bells were ringing all at once. <laughs> it's 
sounds, it's really neat. It and really it's great. really and if you Yeah, and if you've read about the Mormon culture, um, you'll be like, Well, I don't want to read about Mormons again. I read Under the Banner of Heaven, for instance, which is a great book. Um, this is a, a completely different side. It's so much about sort of contemporary mainstream Mormon culture and, and what it means to live that way out in the larger world. She doesn't live with her family, she doesn't live in Utah anymore. Um, and she's she's had experiences around the world and it's and it's pretty it's pretty wonderful. That's really fascinating. And uh, we'll drop links to all of the books that we've talked about on the show into the show notes, which you can find at bookriot.com slash podcast. Uh, before I do the sign off, Matt, where can the people find you on the internet? Probably the best place. Um, I, so I blog about writing at uh, the craft of writing, uh, but in a fun way uh, at com. I do a series called Let's Steal from This, where I look at um, at how we can use our influences to make our own work better. Um, I write about TV for previously.tv, and uh, they can find my book, which is The Book of Right and Wrong, um, at their local booksellers or through Amazon. And you are on the Twitter. I'm totally on the Twitter. I'm at Debenham. Do not add an, do not add an S to that because you'll get the uh, the British department store chain. <laughs> not what you're Debenhams. looking for. <laughs> I get a lot of tweets about pantyhose and shoes uh, and and uh, and rude salespeople. Oh boy. <laughs> so I am at at Debenham. No S. No S. But I do respond to all those people. I want you to know. That's great. Uh, and when you can find me at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y on the Twitter. Of course, you can always find us at bookriot.com and the show notes will be bookriot.com slash podcast. Uh, we're on Twitter at bookriot, Facebook, Tumblr, you know, all of the usuals. Uh, and if you would take a moment, if you like the show, or even if you have some interesting feedback for us to rate it on iTunes, leave us a review. Um, it helps other people to find the show, but it also gives us your useful feedback. And we do read uh, all of the reviews. We've made some changes based on reader feedback in the past. We want to hear from you. Uh, also, podcast at bookriot.com is also available to you to reach out to us. So let us know if you have any questions, any thoughts, if you know something about the stories that we've talked about that we missed or some other interesting angle. We always want to hear from listeners. And again, thank you to our sponsors, Audible and BookBub. Uh, we'll leave the uh, links to those in the show notes as well so that you can get your free trials of both awesome services. That's our week. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> <laughs>